This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I don't think I've ever heard anyone confess the sin that we're going to be talking about. Um, I've, I've heard many people confess the sin of immorality. I've heard people confess to stealing, to lying, to cheating, to using the names, uh, the Lord's name in vain, to getting drunk, to homosexuality. I've heard so much, but I don't think until this morning that I had ever heard anyone confess the sin that we will discuss today, which is the sin of envy. And just so you know, Today we will be using the words envy and jealousy interchangeably because their meanings are uh, nearly identical. Now let's just kind of ease into our topic and let me open myself up uh, in a moment of transparency. When I was growing up, being a very insecure person, I found that a lot of us are insecure and we fake it. We put on a smile. We act bubbly but we're really insecure. And I was one of those insecure uh, people, and, and, and I was bothered that in my class, there was always someone that could do everything a little bit better than I could. I'm competitive, and I wanted to be number one. But there was always someone that was a little smarter than I was. There was always someone that was more athletic than I was. There was always someone a little bit more talented musically. And then there were always a bunch of guys that were much better looking than I was. And I remember one particular guy that I loved him and I hated him at the same time. But he seemed to have it all. He was so athletic and I was not a natural born athlete like like he was with, uh, you know, I worked hard and I could generally compete and do fairly well in most sports, but it wasn't natural He was so smooth and gifted, just a natural-born athlete. And then there was the music. And in Bible college, I sang in different PR groups, public relations groups, and and I played the the trumpet. And and with a lot of practice, I I was able to do okay. And, And to show you how dedicated I was to practicing, there was a time after I graduated from college that I went three full years without missing one day of practice on my trumpet. And then whenever we went to the mission field, I shipped, we shipped everything there, and our, all of our stuff got lost for three months. And I didn't have my trumpet. And so I broke the three years of practice there. And, um, you know, some, some of you have heard this, but when, when you had the same pastor, and I'm sorry for this, the same pastor for 28 years, you're bound to hear things more than once. And, and just humor me on this, because you tell jokes more than one time, you sing songs more than once, and, um, but anyway, I lived in a basement apartment, and, and for some reason, and, and the owners just did not like for me to practice my trumpet in the basement apartment, and, and, and they lived right up above me, and, and so I had, to, uh, I had to get really creative to get in my practice. I would sometimes practice at my work after everybody had gone home. At times, I would practice in store parking lots, and, and, and again, some of you have heard this, but that's when at a Kmart parking lot one night around 11.30, and I was really cutting it close because after 12, then that would be the next day. And so I was into legalism there. I had to get my practice in before midnight. And all of a sudden, while I'm practicing there at the Kmart parking lot, I'm surrounded by lights, and it looked like the entire SWAT team for the state of Kansas had surrounded me. They had their guns drawn, 
ready to take out this guy sitting in his car in the middle of the night practicing his trumpet. I would have loved to read the police report on this. But when they found out that all I was doing was just practicing my trumpet, they smirked. And uh, they said, you know what, it's not against the law to practice your trumpet. They probably thought I belonged at a, at a, at a you know, certain place. Uh, but, but they did let me go. But anyway, to be able to excel in music, I had to practice. But this other guy was still better. And then came the looks. This is where the difference became even more drastic. The, the girls swooned over him. He, he could have had any girl in school and me. I really had bad acne when I was growing up. My hair wasn't much better than it is today. And, uh, and, and yes, at different stages in my youthful days, I had some girls fall for me, but they weren't exactly ones that I would identify as hot chicks. <laughs> and... And, and, and I, I don't mean to demean them in any way, but they were a lot like I was, just ordinary and average. And that's why when Faith came along, she was one of those hot chicks that I had identified. And I recognize that miracles still do happen, and I thank God that He allowed me to marry way above my head. Yes. That's one hot chick over there. So as I compared myself with, with this other guy, that there was only one area that I had over him, and that was in the area of grades. I, I'm not a super genius, but again, hard work, diligent study allowed me to make better grades than he did. But, but really at that age, as a young man, who cared about grades? I would have rather been good looking or super athletic. Now, even though I didn't identify it at that time, but looking back, I was, I'm able to identify, I had a high level of envy towards this guy, jealousy towards this guy. And I think most of us, if we were honest this morning, we would probably have a similar story. So let's begin today with a working definition of envy or jealousy. Envy is the desire for another person's trait, status, Abilities, belongings, or situations. Let me say that again. In me is the desire for another person's traits, status, abilities, belongings, or situations. And out of all of the deadly seven sins, envy stands out from the others for a couple of reasons. First of all, envy is the only sin out of the seven that's in the Ten Commandments. Now, it's under a different word. But it means the same thing when the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. In other words, don't envy. Don't be jealous. But secondly, envy is also different than the other deadly seven sins. Uh, because it's the only sin on the list that has no pleasure in itself. You see, from the very beginning to the very end, envy or jealousy is no fun at all. Now, all of the other Sins and the deadly seven can be enjoyed. Don't kid yourself. There is pleasure in sin for a season. And as I've said many times, if you say that sin is not fun, you're not doing it right. Because most sins are fun. Until you get caught or until you wake up with a hangover or until you try to put back together the broken pieces of a marriage, sin is fun for a season. 
For example, if you look at the sin of pride, what we studied last week, pride makes us feel good about ourselves, at least for a little while. Isn't it fun feeling superior to someone else? Um, And then down the road in the series, one of the deadly seven sins is the sin of gluttony. And I know you're going to try to figure out when I speak on that, and you're going to try to miss that Sunday. But just like the second coming, in a moment you're not expecting, I will deal with that topic. It will come at a surprise. It will be unannounced. But we've all had the satisfaction of stuffing our face in a full-blown act of gluttony. Isn't it fun? Until it isn't. And then another sin from the deadly seven is the sin of anger. Have you ever felt relief from going off on someone? Didn't that feel good, just giving them a piece of your mind and watching their face? The color go out of it. Man, that felt good for a short while. Another one of the seven sins, greed entices us with visions of nicer houses and and expensive vacations and especially fast cars. That's fun to just think about. And then sloth, Sloth, not the animal, but the desire to do as little as possible. Who doesn't enjoy that? Sleeping in as long as you want. Dare I say, watching church on the live stream or listening on the radio so you don't have to get dressed and be around people. Did I just say that today? That's probably not inspired from the Lord. It's probably carnal, but... Then lust. Do I need to explain why lust is enjoyable for a season? I don't think so. So out of these deadly seven sins, six of them are enjoyable for a season, but not envy. Envy is no fun because it makes us feel uglier than someone else. Envy is no fun because it makes us feel dumber, if that's a word. Envy makes us feel fatter. It makes us feel like a second stringer, a bench warmer that only gets to play during garbage time in a game. It makes us feel like a second-rate musician. So the question, if there's no enjoyment, no pleasure in being envious, why, why do we do it? Well, for a lesson, we're going to go to one of the parables that Jesus told in the New Testament, again, Matthew chapter 20, and make sure your Bibles are open there. But before we read this parable, let me say a couple of things. One is that this parable really bothers me. I don't like it. And I know it's part of God's Word. I know it's inspired. I I know it's inerrant. I, I know it needs to be in the Word, but I don't like it. Because from a fairness perspective, this parable is so terribly unfair. And unless you understand the broader lesson that God is trying to get across, you will not like this parable. And the broader lesson in this parable is that no matter when you come to God, whether it's during childhood or or the middle-aged years or the golden years, God will forgive us and generously give us eternal life. Aren't you glad for that? Now, having said that, I wouldn't want to risk eternity thinking that I'll have a chance to get right with God on my deathbed. That's a huge risk. I'm not willing to take And of course, there are other benefits in getting right with God early in life. We can avoid a lot of heartache. We can store up treasures in heaven. And listen, you can leave a legacy of godliness for your family. But God gives us eternal life, even if we repent on our deathbed. And that's the broad theme of this parable. 
However, there's a secondary lesson. And, and a lot of times in God's Word, there will be the primary lesson and then the secondary lesson. And, and the secondary lesson of this parable deals with the matter of envy and comparing ourselves with others and taking it upon ourselves to judge if God is fair or unfair. And as I studied this parable this past week, I thought, Lord, if there's a time that we ever need this parable, it's today. Because how many times do we get caught up in judging what's fair, what's unfair? You know, I'm getting a bum deal. Someone else got the credit for the work that I did. Someone else got the promotion that I deserved. Someone else got noticed and I didn't. Someone else caused the problem at work, but I'm the one that got written up. Not fair, not fair. And so I believe the secondary interpretation of this parable deals with those issues, and we want to talk about that today. Let's read the passage to get the gist of the account, and I'm going to read all the verses, and then we're going to come and just kind of break it apart and go into it a little bit deeper. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of an estate who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, just kind of a little background, many times workers in that day and age, they congregated early in the morning, a lot of times in the town square, those that wanted to be hired uh, for, for a job, which is common in other countries when we lived in South America. If we needed a plumber, an electrician, carpenter, we knew where they congregated early in the morning, and they would have a little cardboard sign, and they would say plumber or plomero. Uh, they would tell what their specialty was. And uh, we, we would hire them. And, and so the owner of this estate went out early in the morning to find workers. And, and more than likely, it would have been around 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and today, even though we have a lot of variations in, in the hours we work, yet we commonly refer to a workday as 8 to 5. You know, I work an 8 to 5 job, and it may not be 8 to 5, maybe 7.30 to 4.30 or, or whatever. But back in the New Testament, more than likely, as an agricultural community, it would have been a 6 to 6 job, 12 hours. Verse 2, he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. And nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. Now listen, at five o'clock that evening, he was in town again, saw more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. The owner of the estate told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. So remember, five o'clock, one hour before quitting time, they did not have a night shift. Verse eight, that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid and each received a full day's wage, when those hired earlier came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested those people worked only one hour and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat he answered one of them friend um i haven't been unfair didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage take it and go i wanted to pay the last worker the same as you is it against the law for me to do what i want with my money should you be angry because i'm kind now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, um, but I think it'd be helpful to just review the parable, put it in everyday terms. You had the owner of an estate, a farm. 
who very early one morning went to the common gathering place to find workers for his vineyard. When he finds them, he makes sure they understand the contract. They're more than likely to work a 12-hour day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And they were contracted at the prevailing daily wage that both parties, and understand this, both parties were completely satisfied with. Again, that was probably 6 a.m. Well, at 9 o'clock, that, that same morning, the owner of the farm happened to be in the marketplace. He saw some people that were just standing around doing nothing. So evidently, he needed more workers. And, and he said, hey, would you like to work? And, and they said, sure. And he said, I'll pay you a fair wage. And they must have known and trusted him. Because it doesn't look like that they discussed the exact details of the contract. But he said, I'll pay you what's fair. And they said, you got a deal. They went to work. This happened at 12 noon. Happened at 3 o'clock, happened at 5 o'clock, one hour before quitting time. Which, if you would put your math skills to work, that means that you had some that put in a 12-hour day. You had others that put in a 9-hour day. You had others that would put in a 6-hour day. You had those that would work 3 hours. And then you had those who were only going to work 1 hour. Now, at the end of the day, the owner of the estate told the foreman, call in the workers, pay them, beginning with the last workers first. And so those who had been hired at 5 o'clock in the evening had only worked one hour. They were paid first. Now let me just stop here uh, for a moment. Imagine you were one of the workers that had been contracted at 6 o'clock in the morning. You'd worked 12 hours. You'd been in the scorching Middle Eastern sun that in temperatures that were probably even higher than those that we've been experiencing the last week. You're sunburned, your muscles are aching, you're dehydrated, you want to get home, you're lined up ready to get the pay that you had agreed to and were happy with. But as you're lined up to get paid, it kind of irks you that the boss decides to pay the workers first who'd only worked one hour. I mean, that's, that's pretty insensitive. He should have been more considerate. I mean, it would make sense to pay first all of those who had been out there 12 hours. But the boss didn't do that. And to add further insult to injury, as he hands out the cash, paying the workers, you're shocked, you're shocked to hear that these people that had just gotten to work an hour ago, they got a full day's wage. Now, what would you be thinking? You probably would be trying to sort through what's going to happen. You, you might be thinking, well, if he's paying them that much for one hour, I'm going to hit the jackpot today. I've been working 12 hours, and so my paycheck more, uh, more than likely will reflect that. I'll get double time, triple time, up to 12 times. My wife will be happy with me today for a change. But that's not the way the story goes. Those who had just worked one hour got the same pay as those who had worked Three hours. Who got the same pay as those who had worked six hours? Who got the same pay as those who had worked nine hours? Who got the same pay as those who had worked 12 hours? Well, what do you think happened? The protests began. They said, sir, sir, this isn't fair. Did you forget we've been working a lot longer than these others? What are you thinking? This isn't right, sir. And frankly, would we have done the same thing? Yes. 
Because from our perspective, it isn't fair. We would have gone to the union. We would have put ugly posts on social media. We would have tweeted horrible things about this owner of the estate. Well, while they were complaining, the owner addressed them. He said, hey, friend, he called him friend. Um, he said, calm down. Let's kind of talk through this a little bit. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Well, yes. Was that a fair wage? Yes. Was that our arrangement? Yes. Were you happy with that amount at 6 o'clock in the morning? Yes. Am I keeping my word? Yes. Then why are you complaining? The boss said, I can choose to pay whatever I want. And I just so happen to want to be generous with my money, pay the last workers the same wage I'm paying you. Should you be angry because I decided to be generous to them? You're being paid fairly. Take your money and go. Now that parable right there that we don't like is the perfect illustration of envy. Envy takes a situation that might be completely fair, but because we compare ourselves to other people's situations, we become dissatisfied. We begin to resent that someone else, at least from our perspective, got a better deal than we did, and we say, not fair. Now this morning, let's look at the ugliness of envy. And the first thing that I want to point out comes from a fairly obscure scripture in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 14, verse 30, it says, a relaxed attitude lengthens life. So in other words, you know what? If you can just relax, if you can just chill a little bit, you probably will live a longer life. A relaxed attitude lengthens life. Jealousy or envy rots it away. So whenever it says jealousy rots it, what is it referring to? Well, it's referring to our life. It rots our life away. When we fall into the sin of, of envy, it will rot away the quality of our life. We will always be unhappy because we will always find something that from our perspective is unfair. We will find someone that always appears to be getting a better, better deal than we are. But not only does envy rot away the quality of our life, it rots away the quantity of our life. You know, there are those that feel like they're always the ones that are picked. I don't know why people always pick on me. That attitude takes its toll on us. It takes its toll on us. And, um, you know, whenever we have that attitude, it will grind us down physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So if you're taking notes here, write this down in your, in, in your notes section Envy and jealousy will make us rotten. That's what it says. Jealousy rots our life away. And I told the early service that I thought about bringing a piece of rotten meat for show and tell. You know, grab an armadillo that had been hit two weeks ago. <laughs> Just put it up here. So bad that it activates your gag reflex. Aren't you glad you came to church? Anybody want to say Hallelujah. But that's not all that envy does. Look at this scripture in the New Testament that brings out more of the ugliness of jealousy. 
in James 4, 1. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? On to verse 2. You're jealous for what others have. Did you catch that? You're jealous for what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. Jealousy causes fights and quarrels. And in this parable, once the workers became jealous, what did they start doing? Complaining. Now, think with me for a moment. Can you imagine how the complaining of these 6 a.m. workers made the 5 p.m. workers feel? You know, when they're saying, hey, hey, these so-and-sos, these so-and-sos, they didn't even work up a sweat. These lazy people didn't get out of bed until noon. They weren't out working in the heat of the day like we were. They don't deserve to be paid that much. And, and I'm, I'm sure, quite sure that at that point some words were exchanged. And maybe one of the workers that started working at 5 p.m. finally had had enough and said, you know what, it, it's time for you to just shut up. It's none of your business what the boss wants to pay us. Zip it. And the 6 a.m. workers who were extra cranky said, who are you to tell us to shut up? Come over here and tell that to my face. I'll rearrange your grill. You know, jealousy causes quarrels and fights and arguments. But that's not all of the ugliness of envy. In Titus 3.3 it says, Our lives were full of envy, evil and envy. We hated others and they hated us. Envy makes us hateful. We hate others, but because we become prickly and resentful, others hate to be around us. And and in our lesson, envy caused these 6 a.m. workers to immediately change from being grateful that they had a job and grateful that they were going to be paid fair wages to unfair, resentful. You see, envy is a very selfish emotion. Envy causes me to resent the fact that someone is better liked than I am. Envy causes us to resent the fact that someone is better at sports than we are. Envy causes us to resent the fact that in a crowd, people just naturally gravitate towards certain people. You know, they're the life of the party. It makes me resent the fact that so-and-so had a party and, and a cookout and a bunch of people got invited, but I wasn't one of them. And if we do not guard against it, many times, whenever we always feel like we're the ones picked on, it will make us hateful, cranky, grouchy. And, you know, we feel like we're always getting the short end of the stick. And so, to maybe level the playing field, I feel confident in saying that we all, you, every one of you, and me, we struggle with certain aspects of envy. I have to fight envy a lot as a pastor, right? You know, I see other pastors that are so charismatic and so gifted. And, and you know, they, they can take the Bible without one word of notes. And it's as if they can just preach a masterpiece. It's amazing. And my mind doesn't work that way. And, you know, they're so charismatic. And, uh, or sometimes I visit other churches on occasion on vacation. And, and, uh, but before I say what I want to say, do you realize? Do you realize how blessed we are 
as a church to have a facility like we do in a small community. We, we are extremely blessed. And I thank God that, you know, we have a facility. We have over a city block here, an incredible campus, and, and all glory be to God. This is no, not because of us, but all because of God. We're debt-free, completely debt-free. We're favored, blessed by God. All glory be to God. But I struggle on occasion when I visit a megachurch that has more people in the church than we have in our entire city. Yeah. And, and I see the people on the campus that doesn't take up a city block like ours, but it takes up acres and acres and acres. And in fact, uh, less than a year ago, I was in a couple of megachurches in Toledo. We'd gone to see my wife's folks and visited a couple of megachurches, and their kids' department was as big as our entire building. It was like, oh, my word. And when envy makes its way into our lives, um, you know, we'll become crotchety, unhappy, hateful. People won't want to be around us. Well, there's another scripture that gives us even more of the ugliness of jealousy in James 3.16. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. So envy, jealousy, they progress into all kinds of messed up sinful lifestyles. Remember at the beginning of the Bible, Cain was envious of his brother Abel and and it led him to murder. And, and, And there are a couple of things about this situation that I want to point out. First of all, Cain was jealous of his brother i mean his brother did you hear that his brother uh, secondly why was he jealous of him because his brother was a better christian yeah he was a better follower of god he offered a better sacrifice to god and he was jealous of him because he obeyed god but that was not the only sibling jealousy in the, in the Bible. Jacob in the Old Testament was also jealous of his brother Esau. And you remember what happened. Jacob caught his brother in a hungry moment and weaseled him out of his inheritance for a bowl of soup. <laughs> Another example of, of sibling jealousy. Je- Joseph's brothers were envious of Joseph because Joseph was daddy's boy. So they sold him into slavery. And then King Saul was jealous of David. Do you know why? Because David was a better ladies' man than Saul. Seriously. You know, some guys have it and others don't. And, and scriptures say that, uh, says that the ladies saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul spent his entire life consumed with jealousy and and tried to kill David on multiple occasions. Even Jesus' disciples, uh, they were envious of each other. And until they had an encounter with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they were jealous of each other. And they were fighting who was going to get to sit closest to Jesus. Isn't that childish? And the thing about envy is that it generally begins over something so childish. But if we don't deal with it, it will progress over time and and show its head through bigger and uglier sins. And, and, and many of the murders that take place today are by an ex that is jealous that their wife has moved on with another person. And anytime you begin to compare yourself with others and look for ways that you're being treated unfairly, whether it's at home, work, at church, you're guaranteed to miss God's plan for your own life. And according to our last verse, envy will bring about 
disorder and progress into all kinds of evil. And let me just tell you, if you're looking for something unfair, you will find it. You'll find it at school. You know, teachers will always naturally be drawn to certain students. Some kids are just more likable than others, and I believe teachers do their best to try to treat everyone fairly, but there, there are some kids that are easier to interact with, and, and so they will joke with them. And If you're looking for something unfair, you'll also find it, listen, at church. Someone might get praised, and you won't. Someone might get to sing a special, and you won't. Someone might get two donuts, and you won't get any. We've been really praying about this situation here at this church um, before we have a church split, but you'll laugh at this, and it hasn't been a laughing matter for everyone because, you know, God over the past few months has really been blessing us as a church, and we've seen, been seeing some amazing growth. New people are coming in, but what's happening is that we've been running out of donuts. I'm serious. And, and we've increased our donut order two to three times, um, but, but you as the second service people, 1045 people, you've been feeling like life is a bit unfair. <laughs> I'm serious, because the 830 service people have been eating all the donuts. <laughs> there it is. Let's go ahead and have the altar call. And so we've been getting comments, and they're partially joking, but partially serious. You know, Joe, those of us that come to the second service are not getting any donuts. Can you do something about it? Those 830 service people, they're just hogs. It's not fair. But anyway, if you're looking for something that's unfair, a church is a great place to fight in things that at least outwardly will seem unfair. And then you can find things that seem unfair in your friends. They will invite someone else over. You won't be included. And you'll think, I thought we were tight. Another great place to feel that life is unfair is at work. You know, other workers will get by with stuff that you don't get by with. Isn't that true at work? It just seems like the boss seems to favor, be easy on someone else, and the rules won't be enforced consistently. It just, it just happens. What I'm trying to say is that life is unfair. God never promised that in this world things would be fair. He said, you will have trouble, guaranteed. Now, thankfully, things will be leveled out in eternity, but here on earth, things will appear to be unfair. And, and when we get our eyes off of God, when we get our eyes off of God, we're in trouble. And when we begin looking at people, at things, at situations we'll be in trouble. Um, and I wonder if God during, during those times is saying, hey, 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 quit, quit looking at situations that you think are unfair. Quit looking at the guy that was hired at 5 p.m. and is making the same money as the guy that was hired at 6 a.m. Hey, hey, Joe, quit looking at churches that are bigger than yours. I think he's telling all of us, quit looking at people who get special privileges. And instead, I think God would say, get your eyes on me. And, and I think God would also say this, by the way, I know, I know what it's like for life to be unfair. 
Because God would say, my son Jesus, my only son Jesus wasn't treated fairly. He was unfairly crucified. But I wonder if God would go on a little bit further and say, hey, hey, by the way, listen. When my son was treated unfairly, I didn't step in and rescue him from the cross because there was a plan. And I pray that God would help you parents, grandparents, us to understand this. You know, if, if you are some of those parents that always raises Cain every time you think your child is treated unfairly, did you know that you may be doing them more harm than good? I, I know the natural tendency is for us to go rescue our children or, or grandchildren when they're treated unfairly. And, and, and our attitude is, you can do whatever you want to me, and that's okay, but don't you dare mess with my kids. Or for those of us as grandparents, especially don't mess with my grandkids. I understand that. We need to protect our children. But listen to this. God kept his distance when his son was being treated unfairly. He didn't call 10,000 angels to rescue him from the cross. Why? Because during those moments of unfairness, the greatest work on earth was taking place that would open the door for our salvation. So aren't you glad that God the Father didn't storm the gates of hell to rescue his son from the unfairness of the cross? And yes, there are times when you may need to step in and take care of an unfair situation with your child, but there may be other times that the best thing you can do is just help your child understand that life at times is unfair. And yes, what happened to them is unfair, but help them to understand Romans chapter 5, verse 3, where it talks about hard times and tribulations, work patience, and that develops character in our lives. So parents, don't always. And I would think you teachers, you'd be ready to say amen here, but parents don't always try to storm the school or your neighbor's house, or hire an attorney when your child has been treated unfairly. There may be a time for that. But remember that moments of unfairness may also be God's plan to build into your child godly virtues, godly character that would not come about by rescuing them from unfair circumstances. Open your bulletin to, uh, to the page with the sermon notes and and I want to look at what we're calling the next step. How do we overcome the trap of envy? Number one, stop comparing yourself to others. And it's interesting, envy is the exact opposite of pride. With pride, I compare myself with someone else and I come out on top. Envy, I compare myself to someone else, but they come out on top. So when you compare yourself to someone else, nothing good will come from it. You'll get prideful or you'll get depressed. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 is so powerful. It says, be sure to do what you should do, for then you will enjoy the personal satisfaction of having done your work well, and then you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. So whenever you do what you can, with God's help, you do your work to the very best of your ability, you don't need to compare yourself because it's your best. Number two, start being thankful for who you are and what you have don't don't be consumed with what you don't have and don't be resentful of what others have i think one of satan's favorite weapons is to get us to take our eyes off of god uh, how he's blessed us and and turn our attention to how he's blessing others and 
And whenever we do that, we're going to just say, God, it's not fair. You haven't given me as much as you've given them. So to overcome envy, I must be thankful for who I am and what I have. This leads us to the third step to overcome envy. And this, this is going to go against everything that's within you right here. Show kindness to the person you envy. So congratulate the person that got the promotion at work, even when you think you deserve that more. Show kindness to the person who invited a bunch of people to the cookout, but you weren't included. Show kindness to the person who's a better athlete or more gifted musically than you. And I know what we say is, well, I don't want to be kind to them because they've already got so much going for them. Why would I want to add to their happiness? But we need to understand that showing kindness to them is not necessarily for them, it's for us. Because when we begin to pour kindness into them, the envy inside of us begins to melt away. So write this down in your sermon notes as well. Godly actions precede godly feelings. In other words, if I'm just, if you are just waiting for the feeling of envy and jealousy to go away, and it probably won't happen on its own. The act of showing kindness will help melt away the sin of envy within you, and, and something strange will begin to happen. You will find that you no longer envy them, but you will find joy returning to your life. Maybe you've heard the phrase, they killed me with kindness. So this week, go kill your envy with kindness. Kill your envy with kindness. And if you would just do me a favor, my email address is here in the bulletin. Would you email me and tell me the results of what happens whenever you kill your envy with kindness. So remember, as we wrap things up today, our definition of envy, the desire for others' traits, status, abilities, belongings, situations. So then the conquering of envy would be contentment with my traits, my status, my abilities, my belongings, and my situations. So I pray that God would begin to do a work and Honestly, it's so hard for us to recognize envy because it's not measurable. You steal something, it's measurable. You say a bad word, it's measurable. But envy, and that's where God's Holy Spirit is going to have to show us. So I'm asking for you to be honest with yourself. And this week, I've been praying that God would show me areas of jealousy and envy in my life and in your life as well. And as God shows us, could we just break the back of envy and begin to show kindness and love them as Christ loved us? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray that this week you would begin to do an, a work within us that, uh, God, as you continue to just purge your church of sin. God, I pray that even sins like this, that sometimes we can't see, and Lord, we can camouflage this. We can, we can somehow hide this, but Lord, it's there. And I believe that whenever we have even these sins that we're going to be talking about, that it does hinder our witness, but it hinders our walk with you. And so God, I pray that you would begin to do a work. God, that as we... Uh, as you show us, and I believe you're going to be faithful to show us areas of jealousy in our lives. And 
I pray, Father, that we would react the right way, that we would not justify, that we would not, God, do anything else, but we would just accept it and say, God, I'm guilty. Forgive me. And that, Lord, we would kill that envy with kindness. So, God, continue to refine your church. Make your church the church of Jesus Christ without spot, without wrinkle, without stain. And God, whenever we're united, as we talked just two or three weeks ago, Lord, at that great wedding of the Lamb, as we show up that there would be fine linens. Lord, that there would be a church that is purified, is holy, sanctified. So God, I pray that you would do that in our lives. Thank you again. So Lord, uh, give us a little bit of rest uh, this afternoon before we come back. Um, Lord, to just see what you're going to do with our kids in VBS. And we love you. We praise you. We worship you. Give us Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. And everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.